good evening, warehouse folks. So glad I have a chance to be with you this this evening. Um, anyone here for the very first time to, to the warehouse? I I thought I saw some. I was going to say I thought I saw some strange faces, but uh, but fresh face, new faces. I guess that's it. I am so glad that you are here. Uh, my name is Greg Waybright. I'm the senior pastor of the church. And occasionally I get this privilege of coming on a Sunday night and being here with the warehouse. In fact, I was, as some of you know, I was supposed to be here already two other times, but things have kept me from being here. Uh, part of it was health, but I'm so glad I get to be here with you this evening. And we're going to be looking at what I think is one of the most remarkable uh, songs that has ever been written. And it's found its way into the Bible. Uh, it, it speaks to the depths of our human experience. Um, this summer, those who have been coming any, into any of our places at Lake Avenue Church, we're, we're going through a series that I call Songs of Experience. I just stole the title from William Blake, you know, Songs of Experience. But what we're looking at is some of the psalms that, that grew out of times of deep human emotion. And I think in so many ways that these psalms transcend uh, history, language, uh, to, to hit areas of, of human uh, experience. And uh, this evening we're going to be looking at, it's two psalms in the Bible, Psalm 42 and 43, but I think originally it was one, and I'll, I'll try to show you why. I don't know if all of you have a Bible. Usually we have one back there. If you don't, you'll have to just listen to me, but I really want you to see it. Psalm 42 and 43. Um, I would like us to stand because we're going to be hearing uh, the word of our Father. Uh, the maker of the heaven and earth. Uh, you'll see that there are three stanzas. I might occasionally stop and point out where a stanza ends and one begins. Uh, each stanza, like so many songs, it will have a verse and then a refrain. And the refrain just keeps coming back. And all of it revolves around, well, you'll, you'll, you'll hear it, a tough time in the psalmist's life. Psalm 42 uh, says it's for the director of music. So, Justin, this one's for you. Uh, it's called a mascal, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Stanza one. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. In the stanza. Why are you down, uh, the refrain, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Stanza two. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. By night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? 
Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? And the refrain, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Stanza three. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let, let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. And I will praise you with the harp. O oh God, my God. So why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. In the earlier services that I've done, I said that I'm going to someday think about this particular message as the sermon that the people of Lake Avenue Church would not let their pastors skip. And I'll tell you why. Because I had written in a publication called Seasons a series for the summer and the topics that I'd be talking about. And in July, I'd put this topic that I'd be discussing depression. And then I skipped it. That, that same day when I was supposed to be talking about the subject, I was inundated with people who came to me and said, Pastor, why didn't you talk about that? You said that you were going to talk about it. I came because you were going to talk. And I brought friends for today. And then I received emails and notes all through the week. So I decided, well, maybe I should go back and look at this. And so I have now, for us here in the warehouse, you know, I wasn't supposed to be here tonight. There were two other Sundays I was supposed to be here and, and so those Sundays, I couldn't be here for one reason or another. But here I am. I have the opportunity to be with you for this topic, depression. But maybe as I look out over the warehouse, people different from other folks who show up at church on Sundays and Saturday nights. Maybe none of you have any struggles with this. Just trying to see what a perfect group this I'm being ridiculous when I when I say that I should have known. I should have known that this is a topic in our world that should not be skipped. Not, not if we're going to talk about life as people experience it. You know, I, I love to read biographies. And one of the things that struck me for years and years is that when I read stories of, of people that have made a great difference in the world throughout history, so many of those people have struggled in an ongoing way with depression. Uh, in fact, I, I went on to the U.S. Drug Administration website, and there was an article by a woman named Leora Nordenberg called Dealing with the Depths of Depression. You might want to look at that. And I don't know, did we get some of the uh, some of the slides here, Jet? Do we know? Because I wrote down a part of this for you. I'll read a part of it. Just listen to what she had to write. It was in, in, the, in one of her articles. She said, I want you to imagine being invited to a dinner party where these people were on the guest list. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Robert Schumann, composer, 
Ludwig von Beethoven, Edgar Allan Poe, Mark Twain, and Vincent van Gogh. You wonder to yourself why these people are here. After all, you know this is a fundraiser to help people suffering from depression. You think maybe they all have someone in their family who suffers from depression. They're there to help them. But the time arrives during the dinner for all of these special guests to make speeches. And you are shocked as one by one, each of these famous people describes their own battle with depression. Abraham Lincoln even quotes from a letter he once wrote to a friend. And here uh, she took a very, very famous letter. Abraham Lincoln, who struggled with depression, would write to a very close friend when he didn't think he could make it anymore. And I want you to see what he wrote. I am now, he wrote to his friend, the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would be not one cheerful face on earth. Uh, Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode that I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. Now, I'll tell you, if people throughout history have struggled with this, I I began to think I have to imagine that people in 21st century Southern California probably do as well. And maybe even people who show up at the warehouse. I I should have known not to skip it. Right. And I should have known not to skip it because some of you know, the last 12 years I was the head of a school. And one part of that school was an undergraduate college. One of the things I learned early on in those 12 years of being the head of a school was that among our most effective leaders, the people who made the most positive difference on our campus, almost always there were groups of people who were struggling with depression. I tried to figure that out sometimes. I, I think sometimes those who make such a positive impact are people who are very goal oriented, often perfectionistic. That makes it so that we can accomplish a lot. But at the very same time, it has this other side to it, doesn't it? Namely, that we can't even satisfy ourselves. And so often those who make the most positive difference in a community are often the very same people who struggle most most, uh, in such a strong way with the darkness that is felt in times of depression. And in fact, after I I learned uh, to talk about this issue just about every year in one of our chapels, And after one of the chapels, uh, a young woman from one of the support groups, we had support groups for eating disorders at at the college. And many of our main student leaders were in that. You know, eating disorders often are characterized by people who are struggling with depression because life seems to be so out of control. Uh, People look for an area of their lives that they can keep in control. And sometimes eating is that one area they think, I can control that piece that hopes they hope that that will be able to bring some order into their lives. And after I spoke about depression in one of the services, a young woman wrote this to me. She said, President Waybright, thank you uh, for talking about depression this week in chapel. I know there are no easy solutions or pat answers to what some of us find to be a lifelong battle. But it was good to be reminded that God still loves those of us who go through times of depression. Even more. I needed to hear that he still uses those who fight depression to do his work in the lives of others. I wanted you to see that because I appreciated that note from her. Because on one side, uh, 
I, I don't want to give you un, unrealistic expectations when I address this topic this evening, as if you come to one message and I will give you poof, the formula, check, 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 do this, and there will never be a time of discouragement again in your lives. It just isn't like that. Uh, but you see that sometimes what we need to experience when we come into a place of worship is this, that in spite of the fact that we may, may not love ourselves, that God declares and demonstrates that he loves us. Uh, and, and that if you can experience what she did that day, that God loves you, knows you and loves you with an everlasting love. And second, that there's still a future for you, that, that God can use you, even if you struggle sometimes with depression. If those two things could happen, then I think it will, will have been good to have been here in, in this place this evening, don't you? Now, uh, as we look at this, what we see today is a psalmist who struggles himself. He's a man of God. He loves God. He's experienced God before. He's worshipped God so much in his life. And yet he's going through this time in which he is downcast and he quite can't quite understand it. Now, as we look at him, I want you to know that sometimes uh, depression is caused by um, our own awareness of our sin and guilt. And when there are things in our lives that we know are wrong and need to be made right, then what we need in those moments are times of, of repentance and forgiveness available also through Christ. Now, I talked about that in Psalm 51. I also know that that sometimes uh, depression is caused by um, uh, evil that is in our world. And I think in those times, sometimes what we need is prayer and deliverance. And this morning, as I talked about this, I had a group of doctors come around me. We have a lot of psychologists who come to our church and they said, you're also aware of this, aren't you? That sometimes there's a physiological cause to depression. And when that is the case, sometimes we simply need to have some medication that might help in those situations. But I have found that many times depression is caused by what I just call life. You know what I mean by that? It just, it's just caused by, by living in this world. And things seem to get out of control. Stress is there. You can't figure out why things are happening the way that they are. You don't quite know what to do. And that anxiety or that frustration leads to the kind of downcast spirit, even for those of us who worship regularly in the warehouse, downcast spirit that the man in the Psalms writes about. Now, I want you to look at that psalm. If you, if you don't have it, you'll have to listen carefully. But if you have your Bible, open to that text. If you can't find it, it's right in the middle of the Bible. That's the easy thing about the psalms. They're right, just kind of, if you open it up and find it right in the middle, that's where they are. 42 and 43, probably originally one uh, song, and I don't know why they were separated. But if you'll see, I want to show you a, as an overview a couple of things. First, you see it was written for the director of music. Uh, so this was a song, as so many of the psalms are. And, and Hebrew poems or songs are, are, are things that express the emotions of people. Some people wonder, why is that in the Bible? Why doesn't it just give us kind of like theologies about who God is or just reports of history about what God has done? And I'll tell you why. Because we as human beings are physical, yes. There's also an intellectual side to us. So the mind is an important part of us as well, a part of the image of God in us. But that's not all we are. There's also an emotional component to us. And God cares about that. And there's so much in the Bible that speaks to those things that all human beings feel. And that's why we have this song that is given to us. Now, the other, second thing I want you to notice. You see, it's called a mascal. A mascal. Now, nobody knows exactly what that is. It's probably a musical term. 
but it's a noun there, a masculine for the sons of Korah. But it probably it's a derivation from a Hebrew verb. And that Hebrew verb simply means something written to instruct. Something that is given to help us to become wise. So if you put this together, it is a song written to us about something that our emotions experience. But it's given to us to instruct us, uh, to teach us how to be wise when we don't feel like being wise. To teach us how God would have us to live even when we're walking through those times that feel like the valley of the shadow of death. So it's a song. It speaks to our emotions. It's a masculine. It speaks to our mind. Uh, John Piper was writing about this and he said, he said, sometimes we've got to know that when we immerse ourselves in a psalm like this one, we begin to think and to feel with God. I think about it just a little bit differently. I think sometimes this part of God's word is given to us so that we can learn to think and to feel the way that God would have us to do it. Now, there's just a couple of other things I want you to notice. I pointed out as I read it, there are three stanzas. Just like so many songs with, with stanzas and then, then refrains. And, and you have this, key, this recurrent, why are you downcast, soul? Why, why are you disturbed? Learn to put your trust in God. And as you read one stanza after another, it has this feeling almost as if it's an ongoing struggle. You almost experience what the psalmist is experiencing here as you hear it. That the one that is over, he's going to try to trust God. But then he goes, leaves the warehouse, goes back home. And by Wednesday, he's depressed again. He walks back in and here, sings the songs. Here's the message. Recommits himself to God. But then that next week, a new wave of depression comes over him. And in this, it, it's what so many people who struggle in an ongoing way with depression have said to me. That depression is not one battle. But it is many. And in the midst of those many battles... I think a psalm is given to us to let us know that God is still there and sufficient for whatever for whatever we face. There, there's a final thing I just want you to notice as an overview before I just race through this. And that is that these three stanzas that we have, the first one is 42, 1 through 5. The second one is 42, 6 to 11. Third one is 43, 1 through 5. They're exactly like, I don't know if we have any English teachers here, but the, in the uh, composition of it, the structure is exactly the same. The meter is exactly the same, except for the second stanza. And in the second stanza, at the very middle of that middle stanza, there's one verse that's added, just jumps out at you. And really, the rest of the song all centers or flows out of this one. And I call it the heart of the psalm. It's chapter 42, verse 8. And here it is. In the midst of depression, the psalmist would write, by day, the Lord directs his love. We know that, don't we? When times are good, when the sun is shining, we know that God loves us. But he says, at night, when it feels dark. His song is also with me. God is not absent then. So I am going to bring a prayer to the God of my life. All right. Let's walk through those three stanzas. They all have some things that are similar to one another, but each one has something that's distinctive about it. Different kinds of causes of this one man's depression. Stanza number one, chapter 42, verses one through five, is a depression. And I want you to think about whether you've ever felt this. A depression that is due to his perceived distance of God from his life and his perceived distance uh, from God's people. He just feels like God is far away. There have been other times in his life when he worshipped together with people and enjoyed it. Other times when God seemed to be so present. But at this point, he didn't. 
And, and one of the reasons is this, that there was always a place where he had worshipped. He had gone to Jerusalem. Uh, he had gone into the temple that was in Jerusalem. He's a, a Jewish man. But at this point, probably, it was the exile of the Jewish people. And so many of them had been run out of Jerusalem and couldn't get back. See, in other times when he had dealt with depression because it just keeps coming in these waves, and other times he'd been able to go into the worship place and done what we did this evening. Someone got Justin or someone gets up here, leads the song, and even though he didn't feel like singing at first, he begins to sing. And eventually his heart is lifted and he's turned to God. The worship together with God's people, within community, had become something that, that was a part of the help to help him walk through this time of depression. But at this moment in his life, if you look at verse 6, he wasn't there anymore. He couldn't get back. How am I going to worship God? And the imagery that he uses is so powerful. Verse 42, verse 1. Here's what it's like. As a deer in the midst of the desert pants for streams of water. God, at this point in my life, I am panting for you. What, what my soul is thirsting for God is for you. You know, I, I lived in Chicago for over 20 years. I always found it hard to talk about texts like this to Chicagoans, where we have way too much water and too much snow. But I'll tell you, I think I can come here to Southern California and talk about this text. This is not January and February in Southern California. This is August. This is the time when they tell you to shut off the sprinkler systems uh, because we don't have enough water. This is a out in the desert. And he says, in a desert... When there is a deer that has been running, it pants for something. And it isn't panting just for some vegetation where there might be a little bit of dew on the bottom. It is panting for water more than anything else. That deer wants water in the midst of a desert when it's worn out. And Father, at this point in my life, when it feels like a desert experience, what I want is you. And the place where he had met God before was in a gathering like we have here this evening at the warehouse. That's... That's where he had usually come. And, and even though God is present everywhere, he had come into that place. The word was opened and, and he had come to be able to worship God. He longed for God more than anything else, but couldn't get back to the place where he usually met God. Now, I want you to notice verse four. This is something that's so interesting for me. Kind of speaks to the, both the preacher and, and all of those who led the worship this evening. These are the things I'm going to remember while I'm pouring out my soul to you, God. I'm going to remember how I used to go with the multitude. In fact, I not only went with them, I led the procession to the house of God with, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Do you see, this isn't just somebody who happened to show up for whatever reason to the service. This was one of the leaders in the worship of God's people. And in, in the midst of him leading other people in the worship, he had experienced the presence of God himself like to look around. Have you ever had that happen? A time when you might be teaching others, leading others, a responsibility that you have in the life of another. But God breaks in and speaks to you. Uh, I'll just tell you a little, let you into a little bit of my own life. I, in, in preparing sermons, usually on Friday, I go in, down into the worship center and I go where I usually preach from there and I practice my sermon. I, I sort of envision all the sinners who might be there on Saturday and Sunday. Maybe I did that this evening for the warehouse, too. What do you think? Who are those people who are going to be there? So I sit there and I try to think about the people. And I, I pray and I think about what would they need. And, Father, what would you have to say to them? And so often, so often, while I'm doing that, the, the Lord, the word and, and the message I want to give to somebody else comes right back to me. 
the Lord directs it to me, and I just have to get down on my knees, usually on the, on the bench that's right there in the very front, and say, Father, I have to give that to you. You see, that's what he had experienced. In, in that place and among the people, he had not only led people in worship, he had met God, and now he couldn't be there. And so he felt that God was far away. Uh, for those of you who have a real relationship to God, your head tells you God is not far away, but your heart feels like he is. Isn't that right? And that's what he's experiencing, this perceived distance of God. And he just doesn't seem to be able to get back to that place or among the people that he loved to be with and to worship with. And that brought him to the refrain. But why are you downcast, soul? He talked to himself. Don't you know that God isn't confined to a space like this? He's the maker of the universe. When we leave this place, go to our homes, when we leave this place and go to our place of work, God isn't absent from that place. Wherever we are, he is there. Why are you downcast? Why are you disturbed? Here's what I'm going to do. Put your trust in God. For I know that a time is going to come when I will be able to praise him again. End of stanza one. We begin with stanza two. And in verse six, he says, but my soul is downcast. <laughs> that, that's just what. So I'm going to have to try to remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from, from wherever you have put me. So the second stanza changes in its imagery. No longer do you have this longing for God who seems to be far away. But now he starts talking about his inner being. And it is a depression that I say is due to a deep personal inner disturbance. Inside of his heart and his life, everything seems to be out of control. You have your Bible. Look at verse 7. It's some of the most beautiful poetry in the history of the world. My English version says, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. Here's what it feels like. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Now, I know we have some Fuller Seminary students. It's fun to read this in Hebrew. Uh, it just sounds like chaos inside of his heart. Listen to it. To home, el to home. To home, el to home. Just feels like a rumbling and a roaring inside. I think if he had shown up here this evening for the service and had stayed around to talk with some folks afterwards, then you might have turned to him and said, how are you doing? Is it, what's wrong? You know what I think he would have said? Everything is wrong. <laughs> there is nothing there is nothing that is right. My whole inner being seems chaotic. And in fact, his language, deep calls out to deep, pulls us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, when before God created the world, the, the world was without form and void. It was chaotic. And then God, the maker of the universe, spoke. And things came into being. And he says, I'll tell you how I feel. I feel as out of order and chaotic as the world must have been before God created. I, I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I'll have to admit to you that, that I have and just need these times of focusing upon God again. I tried to think about any place where I've heard people express this, and it, it reminded me, there was a summer when I read John Steinbeck novels, and there was one character, and I can't remember which one it was. I can't even remember which book it was. I think it was East of Eden, and I think it was Cal in east, east of Eden, because he was such a troubled individual in it. But when he tried to describe what his inner being was like, he said something like this. I'll tell you what I'm like. There is so much chaos inside of me that God could create a whole new world. 
I thought I still remember that such a powerful image. And those of us who have ever experienced it know what he's talking about. You can't keep your thoughts straight, can't focus on things, have no energy for things. That's how he felt. So many people who go through times of depression describe it as a blanket being pulled up over our head. And we just don't know if it's ever going to be pulled away. He, he, he does come back to that verse 8, the one that I said is at the center. But when you come to verse 9 and he tries to pray, he begins to describe what he feels like. Here's what I feel like, God, when I talk to you. I feel forsaken by you. I feel like I'm going to die. I'm going to go about mourning. He may have even wanted to. I'm sick, verse 10. My bones suffer mortal agony. Is all I get is taunted by people saying, where is your God? So, so you see the second part. It's, it's different from the first. The first was he felt like he couldn't get to the place to worship where he could meet with God, where things would be changed. This time, he just had to be honest about his inner being and the disturbance that was there. And the refrain comes in that situation. But why are you downcast soul? Why are you as a follower of God, somebody who has a real relationship with God, so disturbed within? Because the one we call our father... And those of us who are followers of Jesus, the one with whom we now have a relationship and we can call him Abba, Father, is the very same one who in Genesis chapter one, in the midst of that chaos, spoke and took disorder and brought order out of it. And in fact, at the end, took that chaotic world that he started with and would say, it's good. It is very good. And therefore, those of us who know that kind of a God know in our minds that if we'll trust him and wait upon him, he will take that mess that is in our lives now and begin to be able to shape it and make something out of it that is still beautiful, that is still good. That's what my friend from the college was saying. She was so glad to know that there would come a time when God could really use her again in a beautiful and powerful way. End of stanza. End of stanza two. Stanza three. Just just say a word about this, because it seems to me it escalates in terms of how he feels. I've called stanza three depression due to mistreatment by people or, or broken relationships with people. The fact that he had some trouble with the people around him, it resonates through the entire song, doesn't it? But it really comes to a head in chapter three. Verse one, vindicate me, God. I want you to plead my cause against this ungodly nation that I'm in. And I want you to rescue me from these deceitful, wicked people who are around me. You are God, my stronghold. So why have you rejected me? Why do I have to be mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Uh, you see, what has happened is in the, in the midst of a world that is so difficult, all of his relationships were completely out of order. And so in the third stanza, that is the one that he's going to highlight at this time. It just felt so dark. And it's something that I've come to understand as a Christian. When I think of it, even as a theologian, I understand that God reveals himself to us in the Bible as always having existed as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So always in relationship. So people like us who are made in the image of God have been made for a relationship. And that's why when our relationships are messed up, our lives are messed up. I've often even thought as I've talked with people and as I've reflected upon my own experiences, that um, when most of our life is kind of out of order, finances, uh, work, studies, or, or wherever we are, and yet our relationships with important people to us are good, you know, the people we love, our, our families, spouses, friends, then still life is livable, isn't it? You, you don't feel alone and people kind of come alongside of you. But... 
whenever everything else seems to be okay, you're paying your bills and the job is okay and everything else seems to be okay, but a relationship with somebody who means a lot to you is broken, then nothing seems to be okay. Have you ever noticed that? And that's why I think he ends here. He says, Father, I want you to know that nothing seems to be right in all the world, but the hardest thing is I have no body around me that can support me. I, I feel so utterly and totally alone. So, Father, here's what I need you to do. Verse 3, send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me because I have nobody else to help me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain where you are, to the place where you dwell, and, and I'll go there. And he, he was a harp player. We need to pull one of those into the warehouse. Don't you think? Pulled out, I'll pull out that harp and I'll praise you again, O oh God, my God. Bringing him to the refrain. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you disturbed? Because you know God. And here, uh, maybe all of you have walked with the Lord a long time. Let me tell you, the most important part for me about being a follower of Jesus is that when we trust him, he introduces us to a relationship with someone a relationship that cannot be broken. Every other relationship in this world will be a fragile relationship. If we expect people, even, even your pastor, to be absolutely perfect, we will let one another down. But there is one relationship that Jesus came to introduce us to. And the Apostle Paul would lean on that, Romans 8, uh, in saying that even in the most difficult times, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. A love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's what he had. Though all these other relationships are broken, uh, David would say. Why am I downcast? Why am I so disturbed? For I have a relationship that cannot be taken away. A relationship with one who knows me as I am and yet loves me as I am and gives himself to me. I will put my hope in God and I will yet someday praise him. End of stanza three. Now, having looked at that, I decided, you know, this was written a long time ago. Different culture, different language. And yet, as I read this, it just sounds to me like something a 21st century Southern Californian would write, don't you think? Even people who, in the eyes of the world, are so successful, when you see the stories and hear in, in, in Entertainment Center universe in Southern California, even those who are the most popular, successful people, when you look into their personal lives, you realize that this same kind of chaos is there. They could probably resonate with Psalm 42 and 43. In fact, I pulled up the website of the National Institute of Health and saw their description of what depression feels like in the 21st century. They called it a wilderness experience. I want you to look at this, think about your own life and others that you may know, and think also about this psalm and just see how relevant it is. Wilderness, using each letter. Wilderness, W. A sense of worthlessness. Helplessness. I can't get out of this. Inappropriate guilt. Don't you see that resonating through this? Wilderness, I. Irritability. Where on earth are you, God? And maybe we say that to other people. What, these, these evil people around me, they're all the ones that, that, who are to blame, not me. You're L, wilderness, a loss of interest or pleasure in ordinary activities. We can't enjoy where we are, can't enjoy much of what we do. Just so much discouragement. Wilderness, D, sometimes death thoughts, even suicide attempts because we just don't want to go anymore. His constant talking about mourning and about death. And even though he doesn't talk about potential suicide, Elijah did, another man of God in the scriptures. Jeremiah did, Jeremiah 19 and 20. 
So this is simply a part of what people express when they feel this so deeply that, that somehow we'll never get out of this. It's a wilderness experience. E leads to eating disorders such as loss of appetite and weight or the opposite side, uh, weight gain. Because the inner being seems so chaotic, we just need to find something that we can control and hold on to. A wilderness experience are real difficulty in remembering, concentrating, making decisions because everything is chaotic. Wilderness, N, non-treatable chronic aches and pains. Mention up there that verse 10. I'll tell you what my bones feel like, he says. They feel like they're going to die, suffer mortal agony. That's what he expresses. Uh, We may not really have a a real physical sickness, but it's real because we feel it. E, wilderness, energy diminished. Just don't really want to go on. Wilderness, S, sleep disturbances. We can't keep our mind together, such as insomnia. Sometimes we wake up way too early in the morning, and then the very time we're supposed to wake up and go to school or go to work, that's when we want to sleep more. It just seems like everything is chaotic. Wilderness, S, sadness crying persistently. Chapter 42, verse 3. He wanted streams of water, but the only fluid in his life were his tears. My tears are my food. Day and night. I suppose one of the things I want to keep doing is is exploding this persistent myth that if we are strong, godly people, that life will always be just so happy and never a difficulty. This side of heaven, in an imperfect world in which we've been put, in which our lives are not yet complete and all that God would have them to be not yet, times in which we feel like we're walking through this valley of the shadow of death will sometimes come to us all. Now, some will be more prone to it by temperament than others, and yet these times of discouragement come. And the reason why I want to speak to this is simply that we might look and see what one godly person did in the midst of his own discouragement. Now, I I say that the way I do, very carefully. Again, I don't believe that I can give you a path formula. Here's what you should do. Check, 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 check. Zip. No difficulties anymore. But I do want to show you what one godly person did because I find them to be helpful. Several statements. Ready to think about that? Number one. He owned the problem. And he sought to express it through writing. He was a musician and a poet. So he knew that simply writing a letter about it or something wasn't going to be enough. He tried to put it into a song. And that's why we have this in the Bible. If he had never done it, we wouldn't be able to be studying it this evening. I'm so thankful that he did it. It's like a journal. I sometimes wonder if, if the psalmist ever intended for these very personal things to make it into a place where we're studying it here at the warehouse in California. It's hard for me to imagine, but I'm so thankful that he did. What happens when we try to write it down? is that sometimes those chaotic thoughts begin to find focus. Some artists have told me they've started to try to draw pictures to express through art those things that they feel in their deep, deep inner beings. What happens when we do this is we start to gain some more focus ourselves and we start to see a path maybe out of that darkness and, and, and into the light. And one of the best things about it is when we take that time to write down those things that we're feeling and bring them to God, we can come back to them later. Because once that one depression is passed and another one might come, we can look back to the point of where, yes, I experienced it once and God was sufficient. And I find it to be very helpful for the future also. So first, he took time to own the problem and to find ways to express it. 
He did it through a song. Number two. You notice he let himself cry. So when he was feeling this so deeply, he didn't try to bottle it up or deny it. He didn't try to drown it with alcohol or drugs or self-destruction. A wisdom writer put it in another place in the Bible. There's a time for weeping. And when you feel like this, that's the time. Uh, And I think we need to learn so much more to be able to to allow those emotions to somehow be expressed. And that's what he does. He, He let himself cry. In fact, at verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. Three, he not only owned the problem and wrote about it, not only allowed himself to feel what was going on, but three, he engaged in an intentional act of remembering, almost like a spiritual discipline. I, I find so much in the Bible about this, that when God does a work, he tells us, now I want you to remember this. Sometimes he would have people to build uh, stones or altars so that they would come back when God seemed to be far away and remember, oh yeah, he did something great. That reminds me of it. Even communion is one of those times of remembrance. The, the biblical word is zakar. Take time to remember. He took time specifically to remember better days. He remembered times when he worshipped and God seemed to be so real. He remembered other times that he went through difficulties and God was sufficient for the task. And it's he engaged in this specific discipline of remembering. It gave him hope for the future. I think partially because intuitively he knew through his relationship with God that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Um, Not only did he remember, but fourth. When the depression was the darkest, he did not give up. May I say that again to you? If any of you wrestle with depression, I know that even though you may have experienced it before, when you get into the new and it feels worse than any other, the world seems to get so small. May I say this? It will not last forever. The God who is the maker of the universe is the one who loves you. He's the lover of your soul. And he's sufficient for whatever you're facing. Your head will tell you that this is true. You need to give in to some of this self-talk like the psalmist did. Soul, you may need to say to yourself, don't give up. Uh, because sometimes that's what you feel like doing, isn't it? And one of the things that I'm so thankful for is that the psalmist tells us that though we might anticipate that this comes like waves, waves over and over again, that God is sufficient for each one. And I want to tell you that if you're going through one of those periods now, it will not last forever. The time will come when the blanket is pulled away. The joy will return and you will, as the psalmist says, yet praise him, your Savior and your God. And finally, fifth, he not only owned the problem and wrote about it and let himself cry and expressed that he engaged in that time of remembering, wouldn't give up when the depression was its darkest. But fifth, he, he turned directly to God for help. See, he had a real relationship with God. I think one of the most troubling things for me about what's happened in the life of the church in the last hundred years or so is that even in even even in the evangelical church, it's become sort of a a religion or, or a set of rituals or or just something that you learn about in your head. But Christianity isn't that it's a relationship to God. It's a real relationship with God. And there are so many people who show up at church that don't have that. You know, that's true, don't you? And you may be among them. You may long for it. But what Christianity is about is that Christ gave his life 
so that we can call God our Father. Christ gave his life so that he says, it's good for me to go so that I can forgive your sins, but that so someone else can come, namely the Holy Spirit, who, who will del- dwell in you so that you are never alone. And one of the beauties that we have as followers of Jesus is even that very word that describes who he is. We hear it at Christmas, but the meaning of it is so powerful. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So when you come to church and, and you have a pastor like me talk about depression, the best thing that I have to offer you is a real relationship with the real and living God who loves you and is sufficient for whatever you face. Uh, for us, he, he gives us a community like this. And I love the way in the warehouse you describe this, you know, as a community, church sort of inside out, a community that's still all of us on this journey of becoming what God would have us to become, where none of us are yet all that God would have us to be, right? Even your pastor. Now mark it down in case you wonder. And in case you wonder, I'll bring my wife and she'll let you know for sure. But you already know it. You already know it. None of us are. And yet together we meet, turn our focus upon God, sing our praise to him, open his word, hear his voice and become more and more of what he would have us to be by his grace and through his power. The verse that is at the heart of this song is the one that I want you to take to heart. I'll show it to you again. The psalmist in the midst of all of this said, by day, I know this. The Lord directs his love. And we know that, too. When things are good, we always say, wow, God is loving. Look at all the things he's done for me. By, go- by day, in the, in the daytime, the Lord directs his love. But at night, I want you to know this. His song is with me. God is there, too. So a prayer to the God of my life. And the prayer is, why, why are you downcast? I will put my trust in God. For I know that even though at a moment I may be going through a time of darkness, I know that it will not last forever. And a time will come when I will yet praise him. For he is our rescuer. And he is our God. I pray that you'll find that to be true. I pray that you will find this message not just to be words, but to be true. To his glory and for your joy. Amen. This evening, praise be to God. Thank you, Harold. We want to engage in an exercise at the very end. We'll just be able to begin. But uh, I found this to be so helpful. Uh, Did you get one of these sheets as you walked in? Some of you are already writers and poets. I know that among you. So you you don't have nearly enough space here. You have more than we gave the people downstairs in the uh, the big house. But but you uh, still don't have so much. But this evening, even in the light of this, perhaps you can begin. Uh, Maybe you're going through one of those daytime times. Well, this will be really fun. If you're going through a time of darkness, it will be very important. Uh, Look at this. I will praise you, O God, for you are... Think about who God is, particularly in the light of what you're going through at this time in your life. Uh, The next one. What is the Lord? Perhaps you'll say forgiving because you need to know that he will do that. Maybe you'll powerful because you need to know that he is loving, gracious, whatever. You might want to fill it in there. Great, forgiving, loving, righteous, holy is the Lord and worthy of my praise. So in the midst of whatever you are feeling and experiencing now, this is what I feel. Just tell him what it is. Write it as the psalmist did. But I know that you, O Lord, are. What is he? Will he be faithful? Blessed be your name. Amen.
going to take a few moments. I don't know if I'm going to say, Justin, will you come? And as Justin is playing just a few moments, begin filling this out. Perhaps begin writing your own song, your own psalm to God. Express whatever he has put on your heart, whatever he has said to you, as we begin this in response to his word.